Hi everyone, Drew Road here with the Broken Brain Podcast. If you're like me, you're passionate about food and you want to understand the science of how food impacts the body and how food truly is medicine for the body, but you may not want to go back to school to be a nutritionist and study it that way. You want instead a trusted source, somebody who you look up to and trust who can break down the science for you and help you understand fact from fiction. And today we have that exact person on the podcast. We have Dale Pinnock, celebrity nutritionist and chef from the UK, my dear friend, who's here to talk to us about nutritional therapy and how we can use food to improve our body health, our skin health, and of course, our brain health. Dale is the medicinal chef. I think you're going to love what he has to say. Stay tuned for a fantastic podcast. And lastly, Thank you so much for everyone who's reviewed the podcast on Apple iTunes and shared it with their friends. It truly means the world. If you haven't popped over to Instagram and looked me up at D-H-R-U-P-U-R-O-H-I-T, Drew Perroit, and sent me a DM, you gotta go do that. I respond to everyone. Hearing from you, hearing your feedback on the show means the world. I truly listen to everything that everybody sends in, and I'll even hit you back with a little bit of a message or a voice note. Okay, so now on to our formal introduction with the medicinal chef, Dale Pinnock. Welcome to the Broken Brain Podcast. I'm your host, Drew Perroit. Each week, we'll bring on a new guest who we think can help you improve your brain health, feel better, and live more. This week's guest is my friend, Dale Pinnock. Dale has been in the nutrition industry for over 25 years with an undergraduate degree in human nutrition and a postgraduate degree in nutritional medicine and a lifetime in the kitchen. Dale uses the culinary arts as a delivery system for the often confusing science of nutrition. He is the best-selling author of 14, 14 books and a regular face on UK television. He co-presents the hit show, Eat, Shop, Save, on ITV going into its third season. Dale, thank you for being with us on the Broken Brain Podcast. Ah, thanks for having me. Absolutely. I want to start off with something that I read right inside of your bio. Why are we so confused about what to eat as individuals, (laughs) as countries, as nations? Why are we all so confused about something that seems so fundamental, which is what we put in our mouth and eat on a daily basis? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're certainly in trouble. I mean, we are here in the UK and certainly see it in the US as well. I think because food and nutrition has weirdly become entwined with popular culture. Somewhere along the way, it actually became something that was driven by trend and then obviously something that fuels a lot of headlines. And as some of the, the research was starting to develop, maybe the odd little snippet of information would get into the press and that would cause a sensationalist headline and that would confuse people. And, and yeah, all of these things just sort of molded together. But now we're in a state where no one's really entirely sure what to do or what kind of actions to take. Do you think a big part of it too is like the 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 media component? You know, I'm reading an article from March 15th, CNN, Three or more eggs a week increases your risk of heart disease and early death, study says. I mean, something so fundamental that many people have in their diet and you see a headline Mm -hmm. that says you're going to die because you've eaten three eggs or more a week. (laughs) It's sensationalism. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. It's that kind of, uh, really, I I mean, this isn't the the job for the everyday person, but really we need to actually go back to the source of the information. Okay, what was that study? Was that a study that involved following a cohort of 100,000 people for 25 years, or was it 10 students and their dog done in some small-scale facility using poor methodology we need to actually get back to source and see what the methodology that was employed who was sponsoring it the amount of people that were being studied and what mechanisms were used to actually study them in the first place all of these factors determine whether it's good information but the press don't often care about that they just kind of see this little snippet of information and think oh well that'll sell a few few newspapers so there's the headline that's one of the big problems that we have it's the interpretation of some of the data that's that's kind of dripping out for the person that's out there that's listening and this eggs thing was a 
was a big conversation. In fact, Dr. Hyman had to go and record an entire podcast just addressing that. <laughs> you know, for the person that's listening that's confused and is out there, you know, and doesn't know, wasn't taught in school how to read studies, wasn't taught how to dig into it, wasn't taught how do they even begin to put some level of filter to interpret the information that's that's out there that they're being presented with? Sure. I mean, it's 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 tricky, but obviously, if they're um, <clears throat> very savvy with search engines and things like that, it, it's it's only a couple of searches to get back to source. Just searching the headline, you should have a citation in there. There should be a citation in the article anyway, if it's a decent article, and that can take you back to the source. And then, just usually, you'll find that you'll find an abstract, you'll find like an overview of the study on the first page of the article entry, and that will tell you who funded it that will tell you the methodology that was actually employed how many people were being studied and really what you're looking for is the largest number of people possible so you know we've got great sources of information as well we've got things like the um, ndns the national diet and nutrition survey um, in the us you guys have you guys have uh, nhanes these large scale studies that study populations for for very very long periods of time are usually a little more accurate than something that's only only studying a few people because we get that kind of significance of of the data. But it's going to be tricky for people. It's going to be tricky for people. Just try and get back to that original article if you can and do some fishing. But really, you know what? I don't think I don't think we even need to worry about that a great deal. I think really we can take a bit of a step back from that and just look at the 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 patterns in the way that we eat. And I always think there's a, a few key phrases that sum it up perfectly that guides people perfectly you know if it ran swam grew or flew then eat it everything else leave behind and the other one is real food doesn't contain ingredients real food is ingredients and if you kind of stick to that kind of mentality when you're making dietary choices you're probably on the right track anyway i want to go back to uh the source of where this passion came for you how did you get so interested in food and what was your relationship with food like growing up? Well, I've, I've actually been cooking since I was four years old, believe it or not. As soon as me and my sister were old enough to know what a saucepan was, my mum would like get us in the kitchen to help her prepare the family meals. So I've always cooked and I've always been an enthusiastic eater, shall we say, always really love my food. So I've had that passion for a long time. But in terms of actually going down the, the therapeutic road or looking at it as a therapeutic modality, that came when I was about 15 years old, because <clears throat> from the age of about 10 or 11, it was the summer of leaving primary school to go up to secondary school. I started getting really bad acne and it was full on. It, like that, that time of life when you start to kind of compare yourself in relation to your peers, I started breaking out big time. And I went to, you know, different specialists and doctors, dermatologists, different types of treatments, and nothing really made that much of a significant difference. But 15 years old, sat around at my friend's house, feeling sorry for myself, and his mum lent me this book, and it was Fit for Life by Harvey Diamond. Remember that one? Absolutely. And, uh, yeah, that was a classic. Yeah, back in the 80s, wasn't it? But she lent me this book and said, look, unless you change what's going on on the inside, nothing's going to change on the outside. Obviously, as like a 15-year-old boy, I was like, yeah, whatever. But I tried. I read this thing cover <laughs> to cover in a weekend, right? If I thought that it was going to help, I'd try it. Read it cover to cover, and that was the light bulb moment. That was when I had this first introduction to the idea that we can actively engage in our own healthcare. We don't have to just be passive in all of this. We can take steps to actually change our health destiny, so to speak. And that was it. I just got hooked. I kind of read over a thousand books in a very short period of time and yeah, ended up going to university to do do my my first undergrad that was human nutrition. I did a second undergrad in herbal medicine as well, not because I wanted to be a herbalist, but I just wanted to study plant biochemistry a little bit more in depth. And then yeah, did my, my postgrad in nutritional medicine. And then the, the, the preparation of food is the most obvious delivery system for the information. You know, rather than kind of standing up in front of Joe Public, giving a PowerPoint presentation, they're just not going to pay any attention. And also, they can't necessarily apply the information that they learn. But if you show them what breakfast, lunch, dinner looks like in the context of the information that you're giving, then all of a sudden there's a practical framework that they can use to start to apply it straight away. You know, you were mentioning that you had acne when you were younger, and I'm guessing no 
you know, no dermatologist or, or doctor told you that that food has any connection with with uh, with acne. I mean, I was young when I was young. I had really bad acne in high school, mm-hmm. and I would even ask. I would say, you know, does food have anything to do with this? And people said, absolutely not. There's no. Mm-hmm. There's no evidence out there at all that food has any influence over acne. And my friend Anahad O'Connor, who's a author for the New York Times, he wrote a really great article called uh, "The The Claim: Sugar and Diet Can Lead to Acne," and how there's more emerging research and studies mm-hmm. that have been going on for a little while that is making the connection between sugar and diet and acne. And yeah, we might need some more research out there, but it's so promising that people could just try it like you did and see the the benefit and i'm always amazed as to why do you think why do you think the people that you were going to at that time besides your friend's mom were 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 telling you that there was no connection at all were they just not wow. aware of what was existing out there yeah it was different times i mean this this was 1992 <laughs> you know back in the early 90s um nutrition nutritional therapy particularly was very much an alternative practice it was very much in that kind of you know they 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 put it in the same bracket as like crystals and whale music and stuff they just thought it was a nonsense they thought it was a strange alternative practice and it will go away eventually but you know we've got such a strong evidence base now that the evidence base is enough to sway people's opinions and the, stu- the studies just weren't being done back then there wasn't the large scale studies that are being that are being undertaken nowadays so i think it's you know there's several factors to it but obviously the fact that there's an evidence base available for clinicians to actually make decisions from has has changed everything and sometimes the evidence base can be arranged. There might be an early group of promising, you know, material that's that's out there, and then there might be other material that's tried and true, proven. You know, the benefits of olive oil have been mm-hmm. studied and studied and studied and continue to be studied. But I think as a consumer, as an end, everyday individual, one of the things that I love about your message is that, well, what do you have to lose if you just eat a whole foods diet? If you switch the you know from getting rid of processed foods or most of the processed foods, and then going back to that statement, would you say if it if it swims, if it, if it, if it ran, ran, swam, grew or flew, then eat it. Everything else leave behind. And the other one was real food doesn't contain ingredients. Real food is ingredients. Because I'm sure you see it on Instagram and other places like that. There are people who say, well, there's no evidence to show that this might lead to this. And that could be true, right? Large scale yeah. nutritional studies are very expensive and they take a lot of time to mm. do, but it tends to be, I'd love your opinion on this. It tends to be that the risk is so low to switch to a whole foods yeah. diet that why not do it? And if you improve, then you improve. Yeah. I mean, I've never heard of anyone sort of getting a a sudden severe green vegetable allergy or anything like that. So it's a pretty safe practice, you know, just get back to basics and you know you look at look at going back to a population study again obviously that's observation rather than intervention but look at the blue zones look at the areas where you've got longevity and you've got low incidence of many of the degenerative diseases that are plaguing us in this part of the world and they follow traditional diets they they eat a whole foods diet that's based around you know vast amounts of plant-based foods legumes pulses fresh fish those kinds of things they're just getting back to basics and there really is very little to lose i mean of course we all have like individual nuances that are caused by our own unique genes and that whole gene environment interaction picture but for most people it's highly appropriate a whole foods diet is highly appropriate and it's going to be putting them in the best possible position for you know for for a day-to-day diet now, Fit for Life started your journey, and take mm. us from there. Were there other programs, methodologies, diets that you experimented with on your journey of <laughs> understanding what food uh, and how food affected you? Yeah, I, I tried them all just because I wanted to use myself as a guinea pig. Um, I did everything from macrobiotics to keto to the raw food diet. That's how I first discovered you back in that those days. Um, yeah, I used to have an online community for people who yeah. are interested in raw food. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I tried all of it. 
not that I necessarily thought that one of them was going to deliver this holy grail, but I just wanted to understand them from an experiential point of view. And also, if I'm giving people information about things and someone comes to me with a certain question, I want to be able to answer it from the point of view of experience as much as anything else. So I literally tried them all. And the, the, the thing to, to look at, when you look at all of these diets, all of them, all of them seem to deliver these amazing results. You see all these pictures of transformations and you hear people's stories about how they adopted XYZ type diet and had this amazing turnaround in their health. All of these diets are drastically, drastically different, but they share one common factor. And that is they cut out all the rubbish that's making us sick in the first place. They're taking away the stuff that's actually making us sick and building a diet again around whole foods. You know, there's so much uh, conversation that's out there and people who feel that this particular approach is the right way or that particular approach is the right mm. way. And as you had just shared so eloquently, it's really about getting back to a whole foods base. And then within that, there might be a lot of personalization, but I'd still love to get your opinion on a few diets that are sort of trending right now and how you see them sure. in your perspective, things that might be beneficial, things that might not be beneficial for each one. So I'm going to go through a list of diets and that are sort of in the modern, cool. uh, cool. that are on the headlines and would love you to chime in. So right now, um, uh, vegan, being vegan and, uh, not just plant-based, but specifically being vegan is really mm. trending around the world. Um, would love to hear your thoughts on the vegan diet and what you're noticing out there, what you like about it and what are some of the things that people might be doing vegan, maybe not in the best way. Sure. I mean, I guess it depends on reasons for it. If it's driven by ethical values, then I guess there's not really any discussion to have. But if if people are following a vegan diet thinking it's going to be like the, the, the sort of health utopia, you know what? It's pretty good, but there's a few things that they need to be mindful of. Obviously, the one that most people are aware of is the B12 issue. So getting a good quality B12 supplement. But one of the things that's my big concern is the long-chain omega-3 fatty acids, so EPA and DHA. So many people say, oh, you just, just eat a few chia seeds or some flax. That'll sort all your omega-3 out. It won't, because omega-3 isn't one single substance. It's a whole family of fatty acids. And in plants, it exists in the form of ALA. ALA needs to go through significant enzymatic transformation to turn into EPA and DHA. It needs to be elongated, have more double bonds added to it, stretched out and morphed. Human beings are really, really bad at doing this conversion. We're looking at about a 4% conversion of ALA into EPA and about a 0.6% conversion of ALA into DHA. So you could have the diet of a canary. You could be eating seeds all day long and you still wouldn't be replete in those long-chain fatty acids. But you can get supplements that are derived from algae that contain them preformed. So that's another supplement that vegans really need to be careful about. Then also, when, you, when, when people say a vegan diet, all that really tells us is all the things they don't eat. It doesn't necessarily tell us what they do eat. I mean, Oreos, white bread, sugar-laden stuff are all vegan foods. Not exactly conducive to health, though. This is the thing. If they're building the vegan diet around whole foods, then yes, it can be extremely healthy. I mean, the exposure to this amazing variety of phytochemicals and antioxidants and very, very beneficial compounds, huge amounts of dietary fiber. There's definitely improvements in microbiome and in cardiovascular disease risk markers. There's some clear benefits, but that's from the whole food plant-based diet. It's not just the, the simple case of removing animal foods from your diet and then miraculously there's some kind of healing power. It is about building the diet around these good, solid foundation foods. So a couple more diets that I wanted to get you to chime in on that mm -hmm. are trending out there that people are very confused about. They hear benefits. They hear horror stories. So one mm -hmm. that's out there right now is the term keto. Would love your opinion on that. You uh, said that you even tried it. Uh, would yeah. love you to first explain what it is and then your commentary on it. The ketogenic diet, in its in its truest sense, is where you're getting up to seventy percent of all calories from fats. Um, it's been, you know, there's there's certainly a solid evidence base for it in the context of childhood epilepsy, and that's where it's been used clinically for. <clears throat> you know, a couple of decades now. And there's a lot of data to support that, but it has to be very, very well managed. The, you know what? For people that have got some real serious metabolic 
illness you know where they've got huge amounts of visceral fat their insulin sensitivity is shot to pieces there's definitely raised uh, triglycerides these kind of issues the keto diet can really turn things around very quickly but i look at it as being like a a short-term metabolic reset rather than a long-term lifestyle choice i mean Yes, there there are those benefits on those aspects of metabolic health, but then there's a lot of negatives as well. We know that a diet very, very low in fiber can cause some quite serious changes in microbiome, which can raise the risk of certain diseases long term. My big, my big concern was it, because I'm a little bit of a fatty acid geek. I'm a little bit kind of obsessed with them. I don't know. Maybe I should go out more often. I don't know. But it's always one of my <laughs> points of obsession, fatty acids. There's one particular fatty acid called arachidonic acid, which is um, highly prevalent in animal fats. And arachidonic acid is, I mean, you know, maybe we'll get onto this at, at some point, but one of the um, main metabolic end products from fatty acid metabolism is a group of compounds called prostaglandins, three types of prostaglandin. Series one and series three um, have anti-inflammatory effects, whereas series two is pro-inflammatory. So it switches on and exacerbates inflammation. Now, the precursor to the, the series two prostaglandin is arachidonic acid. So arachidonic acid being shuttled in in huge amounts from vast amounts of animal fats can potentially feed into that PGE2 pathway, into that pathway that elevates the expression of the pro-inflammatory series 2 prostaglandin. And then we look at things like cardiovascular disease, for example, and we see that there is a major inflammatory component. The last thing you want to do is fan that inflammatory flame. So that's always been one of my big concerns with it. I mean, the whole kind of lipid heart disease hypothesis is being pulled apart a lot now anyway. So I'm not so concerned in that respect, but it's more the influences on inflammation and also influences on um, microbiome health. Yeah, the idea that we previously thought that just cholesterol alone is the reason that people have heart attacks. You're saying that that's in question and being pulled apart, and and but there could still be some components where having a lot of your uh, fat in your diet coming from animal products, there could be a link to inflammation. Yes, yeah, there is that concern just because of the, the arachidonic acid content. You talked about this term called nutritional therapy and using food as sort of mm. therapy inside of there. Take us through some of the ways that food truly is conducting almost therapy on the body. Give us some examples that people could take away and understand really really the true power of food and its impact on our our body and our expressions of our genes. Wowzer. God, going with the big questions. <laughs> There's some great examples. I mean, certainly in in the you know the, the, the context of inflammatory issues, we know that by manipulating fatty acid content and fatty acid ratios in the diet, we can drastically reduce inflammatory load. And we know that elevated inflammation is part of the pathology of cardiovascular disease, the actual beginning influence that sets the stage for atheroma formation. We also know, and you know, this is this isn't like any kind of sensationalist claim. You'll find this in any pathology textbook. Prolonged inflammation in tissues can influence certain genes that whose job it is to control cellular replication. So prolonged inflammation can trigger cancers. So it's a very very serious thing. Just by manipulating the fatty acid intake in your diet, the fatty acid ratios you can greatly influence that inflammatory load. So much, much less omega-6 because omega-6 will actually, we need omega-6, but in very, very small amounts. Once we take in that small amount, any additional that's coming into the diet will be fed into the pathway that actually converts into arachidonic acid. So we're synthesizing the arachidonic acid ourselves, And then, of course, that feeds into the PGE2 pathway. Um so less omega-6, much more omega-3, those long-chain omega-3s I was talking about before because they feed straight into the pathway that gives rise to the Series 1 and Series 3 prostaglandins, which are anti-inflammatory. That simple shift alone can buffer a lot of that inflammation. So that's, you know, that's one example. Then you know how different types of fiber, for example, can improve the health of the microbiome. The more diversity you have in your microbiome, the more interesting effects you get on 
aspects of systemic health you know like supporting of the immune system that kind of stuff so i mean really we could we could go down all sorts of different rabbit holes with it but it's you know people need to remember the food that they eat directly influences the internal biochemical terrain of their body and as such has the capacity to target as many aspects of our physiology as a prescription drug can you know it can directly target different things because you know the nutrients in our diet either make something happen or make something that makes something happen so having that knowledge and understanding how to manipulate your diet in that context you know it's a powerful thing how important is diversity in our diets oh incredibly important i mean especially especially diversity of color as well because the the colors generally represent different spectrums of nutrients and phytochemicals so the more the more diversity in color the broader your intake of a lot of these very very protective compounds but especially when we're getting back to whole foods again the amount of complexity in these foods in terms of their you know their their chemical profile is absolutely mind-boggling sometimes so the more diverse your diet is the more of these potentially therapeutic and certainly beneficial compounds you're getting in on a day-to-day basis it's like an edible medicine chest it really is when you do your show and you write your books and you're on social media and people are going down this path of cleaning up their diet and putting the emphasis on whole foods, what are, you, what are the common things that you see that trip them up on the journey of getting there? Yeah, they may, they sometimes make it a little bit too difficult for themselves. They think that they, you know, one, they think that it's got to be perfect. There isn't, there isn't perfection. It doesn't exist. It's, it's um, a daft thing to try and find. They try and adhere to you know this this preconception they have of what they should be doing rather than just kind of experimenting and uh, you know enjoying the journey they're trying to be too perfect too quickly i see that quite a lot but the big one the real real big one is they change their the kind of food that they're eating really drastically really really quickly so you know what if someone's living on pizza and burgers and suddenly overnight they try and live on kale salad and quinoa the palatability just it just isn't going to be there. They're just not going to stick to it because they're they're trying to put a square peg in a round hole. They're eating things that they're just not enjoying. So my approach is like, okay, pizza's your favourite thing. Awesome, let's make one. You know, don't go down to the down to the pizza joint and get that really expensive cheese on toast. Let's make one. We'll use like a multi-grain crust and we'll put more vegetables on the top of it. Only a little sprinkle of cheese, not swimming in it. Just teaching people how to recreate their favourites definitely definitely increases the palatability of everything it increases the likelihood that they're actually going to stick to this because they still get to enjoy the foods that they love but they've just learned how to change it in a way that benefits their health so that's you know that's a really important starting point for anyone is like you don't have to give up the things that you love just learn how to make it better for you and also importantly understand why the changes you're making makes it better for you. And then it's a, you know, it's a very, very smooth transition into a whole foods diet. You've been cooking since you were a little boy and your mom got you excited for it. How important is it that people actually know how to cook? Because when I look out there, I see a whole generation of people who genuinely, they don't, they wouldn't know how to make like an omelet. And I know it's scary, isn't it? Yeah. And so this is sort of a two-part question. You know, can somebody still be healthy if they don't know how to cook? And what was, you know, what did your mom do to really get you excited about cooking? You know, did she make it fun? Were there things? And are there any tips that you would have for parents out there that are trying to get their kids in the kitchen and learning about this? So, uh, yeah, first question is... Well, yeah, if you could break those down, I'd love to hear yeah, well, well, the first the first bit, yeah, absolutely. You can still be you can still be healthy if you're not cooking, if you've got the budget for it. I mean, obviously I, you know, I do get to go out to um, you know, lovely Los Angeles where you guys are quite often, and you can find a healthy eatery anywhere. There's such abundance of like wonderful healthy food outlets if you've got the budget to be able to do that three meals a day. If you have, awesome, go have fun. But 
for most people, I think learning how to prepare some basic foods and, like I say, certainly recreate your favourites will stand you in good stead. And then it, it, the second part, now this is something we see on Eat, Shop, Save all the time, is um, maybe the kids in the family are fussy eaters or they won't go near vegetables at all. They've just not got any kind of desire to try these new foods. And we find almost every single time, without fail, getting them in the kitchen getting their sleeves rolled up and getting them involved in the creative process. Something as simple as like, okay, what what else could we put in here? How could we make this look a bit nicer? Da, da, da. Getting them involved in the creation of the meal, it taps into the same creative processes as <clears throat> creating a piece of artwork. They all of a sudden have this emotional attachment to the food because their creative input was there. And because they were involved in its creation, they're more likely to try it. So getting them in the kitchen and finding any way to motivate them to just get in there more often and be more, more enthusiastic about food will carry into later life these healthy habits. I wanted to switch topics and talk about a subject that's very popular right now, intermittent fasting. You've done your own experiments on this. Mm. Tell our audience a little bit about intermittent fasting and if you still incorporate it into your routine and how people can get the best benefits and maybe if some people shouldn't embark on that journey. Yeah, I mean, I I did a bit of an experiment on myself kind of using the eating windows where I'd eat my first meal at lunchtime at like, you know, 12 noon and then my last one at at 6 p.m. And all that space in between fasted for a little while just to see how I got on with it and saw some really interesting results. It's certainly good for like post holidays so if you've been away on a holiday or after the christmas period or whatever when you may not have always eaten that well or treated your body as well (laughs) as well as you should have done it can be a great like metabolic reset and certainly help to to give the metabolism a bit of a kick because what happens when you actually go into that fasted window you start moving over to using fatty acids as a fuel source so it's almost like the, the the end product that people are aiming for when they do a ketogenic diet which is like where we actually start favoring fat as a fuel source and you know turning fat into ketone bodies as a fuel source for cells without that vast amount of animal protein you can actually cause that metabolic shift just by having that fasted window and that's certainly what a lot of the evidence has actually pointed to and then also the influence that it can have on certain genes like the sirtuin genes the um the the kind of genes that are involved in cellular housekeeping and uh, anti-aging and the, the longevity genes there's a lot of evidence to support it most people will get on well doing that kind of approach to intermittent fasting that window in the morning what i found i mean there was a diet that was really really big here in the uk i don't know whether it hit the us or not called the 52 diet which is like 5 days a week uh, you've got your normal caloric intake and then 2 days the week you, you go down to about four five hundred calories and that takes you into that intermittent fasted state for some people that works really really well but most people found that on those two days they were absolutely fixated on food they were completely and utterly obsessed and it also it caused dysfunctional eating on the other days when they could eat you know quote unquote normally they would use those days as like a hall pass to go absolutely mental and just live on like ice cream and all sorts of nasty stuff For the people that could handle it, it was absolutely fine. But for a lot of people, it was really quite uncomfortable. The evidence absolutely was there. The evidence supported all of the claims that were made for the diet. But this eating window, this this whole thing of like skipping the breakfast, that one thing that we're all told never to do, and just eating within that small window between 12 and 6 or 7, is much more comfortable for most people and it still delivers the same effects. So yeah, it can be it can be a useful tool. None of these things are like a perfect utopian thing in their own right. They're just useful tools. Certainly I use it um post holiday or if I'm going on holiday maybe like and you want a, a bit of a beach body thing going on, it's quite good to actually give give the basal metabolic rate a bit of an acceleration but other than that i mean you know some people have reported improvements in blood lipids blood sugar management those kinds of things and i think for most people there are those metabolic benefits 
you know, in my, in my uh, culture, in the Indian culture, uh, which fasting was a regular part of mm. life growing up, and I would see my parents fast regularly. Um, one thing I noticed there that was interesting and is that there was not a lot of like skipping breakfast. Instead, they would skip dinner. And so they might have breakfast, like one meal a day, and they would skip mm. lunch and dinner. Or they might have, if like, because fasting was a regular thing, there was at least a couple times a week where my parents would you know, just skip dinner and they'd have breakfast and lunch, sometimes for religious or spiritual uh, reasons. Uh, but there was obviously the health benefits. Um, I notice that um, that I do best when I, in, in my week, when I do like intermittent fasting, I might have a bigger breakfast and then I skip lunch and dinner. And I that tends to work a little bit better for, for me. So when it comes to like intermittent fasting, do you encourage uh, experimentation and, and trying different sure. things? Do you have any opinions on that? definitely definitely um experiment and see what is the most comfortable for you at the end of the day it's delivering the same result that prolonged period of not eating will soon once you once you burn up your glycogen stores you'll very quickly shift over to using fatty acids as the preferred fuel source you know we we've, we've got that adaptability so just do what is comfortable for you if if it's something that you decide that you want to pursue then see which works the best because it all delivers the same outcome well, this is the Broken Brain Podcast, so we talk a lot about brain health. You know, you've talked about the importance mm. of uh, fatty acids and the spectrum of fatty acids and how important they are uh, to the body, but give us some tidbits mm -hmm. about food and the connection to brain health. What do we know out there and what's important for people to understand uh, when it comes to the foods they're choosing and their impact on the brain? Wow. I mean, again, it's, it's, it's another huge area and an area that's um, accelerating a great deal. I do, you know, I, I mean, of course, it's one of my points of obsession, but I do think the omega-3 fatty acids are one of the most important groups of nutrients for the long-term health of the brain for three main reasons. Firstly, DHA is one of the key components of myelin. So the myelin sheath, that sort of fatty capsule, capsular layer on the outside of neurons, that capsular arrangement that allows the actual action potential to be shuttled down the neuron at lightning speed, that important fatty structure requires DHA on a regular basis to maintain itself because you do get a natural breakdown in myelin through metabolic activity daily, but then your body just repairs it. You need the actual substrate there on a regular basis to be able to meet the body's needs. The second, second and third things are kind of related. The omega-3 fatty acids do influence pre- and post-synaptic activity. So obviously the synapse, that's that gap between the nerves. Nerves don't touch. There's a very small gap between them. And obviously the main communication along a neuron is an electrical impulse called an action potential. But when that action potential gets to the end of the neuron the neuron has to release a certain type of neurotransmitter, which is a chemical that can actually jump that gap between the, the, the two neighboring cells. It's a, it's a chemical that leaves the first cell, gets detected by the neighboring cell, and tells the neighboring cell what kind of signal is actually being sent. Now, the postsynaptic neuron, no, the presynaptic neuron, sorry, is the one that's sending out the signal and the postsynaptic neuron is the one that's receiving the signal in the presynaptic neuron the neurotransmitters are stored in these little bubbles called vesicles and when they need to be released into the synaptic space the the vesicles move right to the end of the of the membrane and kind of fuse with the membrane there and spit their contents out into the synaptic space the omega-3 fatty acids allow the membrane to be much more fluid and allow that activity to take place much more efficiently. And then the neighboring neuron, the postsynaptic neuron, has to then detect the signal that's being delivered by the neurotransmitters. So there's neurotransmitter receptors there. The omega-3 fatty acids actually regulate the activity of neurotransmitter receptors on the postsynaptic neuron. So they can actually make those receptors much more efficient at receiving the signal that neurotransmitters are sending out. So those three areas, myelin sheath maintenance, improved membrane function, and improved neurotransmitter receptor function 
are you know my three big justifications for saying yep omega-3 definitely top of the list because it's very very general it has a very general broad reaching influence on brain health but then also with a lot of degenerative neurological diseases there is this neuroinflammation component it's a new area that's being studied and there's new links with um certainly with depression and also with Alzheimer's as well, that there is a neuroinflammation component there in these conditions. As we spoke about before, the omega-3 fatty acids will actually help the body to express more of the anti-inflammatory series 1 and series 3 prostaglandins, which can help to bring inflammatory load down. Powerful. And then the other... It is powerful. But then the the other group of nutrients that I'm that I'm sort of a little bit obsessed with as well, as well you know, as, uh, as we do, are uh, flavonoids. Now, flavonoids are phytochemicals, so they're not specifically nutrients. You can't get deficiency signs in them, but they're they're substances in our food that will actually impact our physiology quite drastically. They tend to be the things responsible for deep purple, blue, and dark red color pigments in food. So think blackberries, blueberries, red onions, red wine, dark chocolate, that kind of stuff. These substances actually have some quite interesting effects on our cardiovascular system. What happens is the endothelial cell, so the endothelium is the highly biologically active skin that lines the inside of blood vessels. Those endothelial cells can take up flavonoids quite aggressively and effectively. And when they take up these flavonoids, the flavonoids will cause almost like a metabolic distress within the endothelial cell. And that metabolic distress causes the endothelial cell to secrete large num- a large amount of something called nitric oxide, a gas called nitric oxide, which is something they do anyway, but it's just this like alarm response that goes off when they take up flavonoids that makes them do it more aggressively. The nitric oxide leaves the endothelial cells, moves out into the smooth muscle that makes up the actual blood vessel wall and causes those muscle fibers to relax. As those muscle fibers relax, the vessel dilates. It gets bigger. Now, you've got two benefits there. Long-term cardiovascular health, it reduces blood pressure. But certainly at the University of Reading here in the UK, there's been a lot of work using berry flavonoids and enhancement to cognitive function because it increases oxygen and nutrient delivery to the brain. It enhances circulation to the brain. Incredible. It's like once you really start to break it down and as the science starts to continue to reveal itself and more funding goes towards uh, nutrition and the impact of it, we see just how beautifully designed uh, our bodies and and nature and pure, pure food are and whole food is to keep us functioning at our optimum level. Mm. Yeah, it's fascinating. You know, you recently wrote an article about uh, the secret to better sleep, and you talked about uh, GABA. And an important part of uh, brain health is getting better sleep. And we're seeing Mm. now, I wouldn't use this term lightly, but an epidemic of people who are not sleeping well for a combination of a bunch of different things. And on this podcast before, we've talked about blue light. We've talked about sleep hygiene. Um, I want to go into a little bit more about uh, nutrition and specifically mm. help us understand, you know, what is GABA, what's its role with uh, sleep, and what can we do and eat to support the process of uh, increasing it in the body and having better sleep? Well, GABA is the primary inhibitory neurotransmitter. So you've got some neurotransmitters that are excitatory, like glutamate, for example, that kind of rev things up and get things going. GABA, on the other hand, is the primary inhibitory neurotransmitter. So it just tones things down, calms things down. You know, it stops the brain racing. It just down-regulates everything and gets you into that relaxed state. Now, one of the problems that we have at the minute is, <clears throat> excuse me, so many of us are highly stressed. We're, we're like complete cortisol junkies. We're flitting around from one place to another we're juggling our diaries we're we've got a million and one different responsibilities that we're trying to to juggle all at once modern life is pretty stressful so our stress hormones can be really really high our whole neurotransmitter synthesis can be right out of whack should you know the the ideal scenario is that in the evenings our, our cortisol goes down our GABA goes up and you know we get into that nice rested state but that doesn't happen very often anymore because of the kind of onslaught on our physiology that we're faced with in modern living. But nutrition can manipulate that to a certain degree. 
magnesium, one of the absolute best tools for better sleep. A good dose of magnesium, you know, 400 to 500 milligrams, maybe even up to 1,000 milligrams if you can tolerate it, about 40 minutes before you go to sleep, increases the expression of GABA. So it really, really upregulates the release of GABA. So it calms the CNS down, but also works as a muscle relaxant as well. So it can really make you physically unwind. And then the amino acid tryptophan is another one. If you can get good sources of tryptophan in your evening meal, tryptophan is the amino acid precursor to serotonin. Now, most people know serotonin as being like that kind of feel-good neurotransmitter. When our eyes detect darkness, serotonin will convert over into melatonin, which is the thing that kind of sets the clock, gets you to sleep and keeps you there, keeps you in a, a, a good quality deep sleep. So a good dietary source of tryptophan in your evening meal, and that could be it could be turkey, it could be tuna, peanut butter, bananas, all of those kind of things have got a good amount of tryptophan in them, can be really, really helpful as well. Those two things together, tryptophan, and magnesium, definitely my 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 two, my two go tos. I mean, if if I want a really really good kip, and I didn't, I don't need to wake up too early like the following morning. So on like a Friday night or something, when I can have my Saturday lay in, I will take magnesium and I will take five hydroxy tryptophan as well as a supplement, and it's it's lights out. It's great. I love it. You know, you mentioned earlier that uh, you have a little bit of a cold, and. Mm. When you uh, find yourself in that position, what are some of the things that you're incorporating and making for yourself that are both uh, like the nice comfort foods or the warmest foods that people might want, but actually mm. have a therapeutic effect on the body of of boosting your immune system and helping you recover from having the cold? Well, I've got this one particular recipe that's kind of it became like my signature dish for a while. I, I uh, took it onto like a national radio show and everyone went mad and it crashed my website for three days. And ever since then, people have always asked me to make it or talk about it. And, you know, it's, it's a little bit cheeky, the name. The name is the flu fighting soup. You know, so it's a bit of a claim. Obviously, nothing <clears throat> cures the common cold, but there's certain things you can do to minimize the duration and certainly minimize the symptoms. But one of the key ingredients in this soup is shiitake mushrooms. Now, there is around 50 years worth of clinical research on mushroom polysaccharides. So the polysaccharides, these are very, very large chain sugar molecules. Mushroom polysaccharides and immune function. And what we found is that the mushroom polysaccharides, they basically come out the other end fully intact. So, you know, we don't digest them and absorb them, but they instigate some kind of effect on the immune system. One of the things they do is increase the production of natural killer cells, and they also increase the activity of phagocytic cells, so cells that can actually engulf pathogens. And how they do it, it really is quite fascinating. And it's an interaction with certain areas of tissue in the gut wall. Within the gut wall, you've got little patches of tissue called payers patches that I liken to being like a surveillance station. They sit in there constantly monitoring gut contents, because if you think about it, the gut is like a very simple interface between the, the outside world and the inner working of the body. So it's got to be quite tightly policed. The payers patches have got quite a high density of certain types of white cell, antigen presenting cells, dendritic cells, those kind of things that are monitoring what's coming into the gut and then setting the body up for either immunological defense or the development of tolerance. So it's telling the body, this thing's a threat, this thing isn't. And this is going on constantly. What we found is mushroom polysaccharides interact with the cell population in the payers patches. And the theory is, it is still theory at the moment, but the most likely explanation is that these particular polysaccharides are very similar to polysaccharides that are displayed on the outer surface of certain types of bacteria. And this sets off essentially a chain reaction, like an alarm response, a cytokine cascade from the cell population in the payers patches. The cytokines are secreted, systemically circulated, and ramps up these immune responses that we observe when people take in these mushroom polysaccharides. Those things can knock a cold out pretty quickly because it can ramp up your immune system so, so quickly. Then also I've got things in there like um, chili 
that's a decongestion and ginger that has anti-inflammatory activity uh most of the symptoms that you, that you feel from a from a cold and an upper respiratory tract infection is inflamed secretory surfaces so anything you can do to kind of buffer that inflammation will make you feel much better so those are usually my my go-to so i could make that soup or something as simple as like shiitake mushrooms sauteed with a bit of garlic and chili on some toast happy days done I just uh, Googled flu-fighting soup, uh, Dale Pinnock, and I see all these websites here that are yeah. like, feel better with the famous flu-fighter soup. Dale Pinnock's flu-fighter. The famous flu-fighting soup. Yeah. Right online, YouTube videos. Uh, you really uh, crashed the internet with that one. <laughs> mm. <laughs> I want to take it full circle. You know, uh, one of the books, one of the 14 books that you wrote um, hmm. It's called the Clear Skin Book, and I'm sure influenced by your own journey of yeah. having acne uh, when you were younger. And, you know, uh, sometimes vanity is the initial motivator to get people to start paying attention. It was for me, yeah. if I didn't have bad acne when I was in high school, I wouldn't have started down the journey of questioning what I was eating and the impact that it was having on my body. I would have just continued to do other things. And so in that way, I'm grateful um, for it. Um, share with us some of the kind of lessons. Uh, you talk about a lot of different themes inside of the books. You go into different vitamins and, and minerals that you need. But big picture, for anybody looking to uh, improve their skin, uh, feel or look younger, and have smoother skin, what's essential mm. for them to understand when it comes to food? Definitely a diet high in carotenoids. So the carotenoids, these, again, they're, they're color pigments. It's like the plant form of vitamin A, beta carotene is. Color pigments that are usually yellow or orange color. So think carrots, sweet potatoes, mangoes, those kind of things. The carotenoids are a fat-soluble antioxidant. Now, people always talk about antioxidants in the skin. It's just like, oh, yeah, just these berries have got antioxidants in, so they're going to be good for you. Well, yeah, but not all antioxidants do the same things, and not all antioxidants have the same affinity for the same tissues and same you know reactive oxygen species and that kind of stuff there's massive diversity but in amongst all that diversity you can pretty much put antioxidants into two distinct categories that's water soluble so something like vitamin c that delivers its effects within systemic circulation for a limited period of time is then metabolized and excreted and then you've got the fat-soluble antioxidants. Fat-soluble antioxidants, by their very nature, won't stay in systemic circulation for very long. They want to migrate out into fatty tissues. And second to the brain, the most abundant fatty tissue in the body is the subcutaneous layer of the skin. Within that subcutaneous layer, you've got lots of important structures like collagen and elastin that that protein lattice that gives skin its structural integrity and these structures are very susceptible to free radical damage particularly if someone's in the sun a lot or if they're a cigarette smoker that kind of stuff they can get damaged quite drastically from oxidative processes if we've got a consistent source of the fat soluble antioxidants that will actually accumulate in that subcutaneous layer of the skin that can offer localized protection and that can keep the skin looking younger for longer the, those carotenoids are so effective at accumulating in that layer of the skin that you sometimes see this with people that are really into juicing or you'd often see it with a lot of the raw foodies as well there'd be a, a condition called hyperkeratinemia where the skin would take on a bit of an orange hue happen to steve and get uh, the vegetable steve jobs <laughs> <clears throat> yeah exactly exactly it's um that that keratinemia that's testament to how well those compounds will actually accumulate in that layer of the skin. When they accumulate there, they can deliver localized antioxidant activity. So that's that's a big one. That's huge. You know, Dale, every time I hear you d dive into and explain one of these foods or other things, first of all, I get super excited to go, you know, after this interview, I want to go get some like shiitake mushrooms. <laughs> you know, I, I get excited <laughs> about that. And I think I, I'm probably an individual who's in this category, and a lot of people can um, relate. I love nutrition. I love to read about it. I 
don't think a lot about what I eat in the day now because I've gotten into a good groove and rhythm and I've diversity my diet and I know what works for me and I focus on whole foods and I've dialed into it. And I thought about it a lot so that I don't have to think about it. You know, food doesn't run my day like it used to yes. in the in the past. And I'm fascinated about fascinated about nutrition, but I don't want to go back to school to become a nutritionist. I have no desire for that. I have no desire mm. to uh, stay in lecture all day. And you've actually built something for probably the individual like myself who wants more information, but I would call them a professional amateur, right? They study and they mm -hmm. really want more information, but they don't want to go do that for a living. And you've built actually a entire sort of like a mini school, an online school. Can you tell us a little bit about it? The nutrition coaching monthly program? Yeah, I mean, it was literally for that reason. So many people were contacting me saying that they wanted to learn more about it. They didn't want to just be reliant on Google or a magazine. But they didn't, they didn't have any desire whatsoever to actually go and study it and were asking what are the best resources to actually get good quality information. So I decided to set one up. Yeah, Nutrition Coaching Monthly, every single month I go live and deliver a live class and we go we go in we go deep we go into all the anatomy the physiology the biochemistry how nutrition fits into that picture and then how you can apply the information but it's del delivered in a way that anyone can get benefit from it i mean we've got everything from high school students through to um mds in the program like that are members from all over the world from the uk the us canada egypt portugal they're everywhere everywhere and nobody yet has said the information is too complex or the information is too basic it's pitched in a way that anyone can get benefit from it so once a month do an hour-long class it's an interactive platform as well so people can ask me questions as we go along and then also once a month we do like an open forum q a where i literally just just pop up on the on the on the webinar and um, people can ask any questions they can just use me as a resource what uh what's an interesting question that you've gotten uh so far that uh either surprised you or was a little bit different uh just curious if you have anything that comes oh, to mind it's honestly honestly it's it's it really is so diverse i mean sometimes it can be as simple as you know should i be avoiding carbohydrates or not or it could be as complex as like look i've I'm, I'm taking 20 different medications i've got this going on this going on this going on i want to actually structure a diet that can give me benefit but that's not going to interact with any of the drugs so it really really is diverse and um yeah you never have the same day twice doing that kind of stuff that's a sure fact because people have come at this for all sorts of different reasons some people find nutrition through their own health challenges some people come to the subject just through absolute fascination so depending on what's actually driven someone to search for answers will determine the kind of questions that i get and they're a, they're a, they're a diverse group that's for sure that's amazing you also have a show uh you're a presenter on itv's consumer show eat shop save we mentioned it in your bio earlier and it's heading into its mm -hmm. uh third season you work with families you help them uh eat healthier and especially like shops smarter yeah. and save. Is there, is there a story, you know, most of our audience is in the U S but we do have some people globally, but for the people that are in the U S that have, don't have access to the show or haven't seen it, I know there's clips on YouTube, so you can go to YouTube and you can see some clips. Mm -hmm. Is there a story of a family member or somebody that you worked with on the show that encompasses, you know, why the, why the show was started and what your mission is on the show? Yeah, in, in, in season two, um, had a, a family called the Bassett family. And uh, the father, Dan, he was a typical kind of guy. He was <coughs> having like um, two packets of crisps and two um, or chips, should I say? Yeah. I forgot the US audience, two packets of chips and um, two sausage rolls, like two big heavy pastries for breakfast and, you know, a couple of chocolate bars for snacks. Basically, the entire diet was built on junk. And, you know, he, he was obviously becoming aware of the fact that he needs to stick around for his kids and he knew that he needed to make changes. So we, we, we kind of used that initial desire and that initial emotional motivation to our advantage. We actually compiled a list of all the negative additives that he was eating in a week and we held this thing up and it was like a shopping receipt. We let, let it go and it hit the floor. It was that long. And he 
he just burst into tears. He couldn't believe the, the the amount of rubbish that he was putting into his body almost consistently. And he took the information to heart from day one. He changed everything. He's lost about um, six stone in weight. He's, um, his blood pressure has gone back to normal. His cholesterol has gone down to a, to a healthy ratio now. Like the actual LDL to HDL ratios are really really good the total numbers really really good he was on some uh, blood sugar medication as well he's now medication free so he's not at risk of type 2 diabetes anymore he has turned everything around he's got more energy he's got more energy to actually engage with his family in a, in a completely different way so it's transformed his relationships as well and he's most of all, he's still enjoying his food. He's getting in the kitchen. And we recreated his favorites. So he, he likes chicken kebab. So it's like, well, that's easy. We'll just do some, some grilled chicken and a nice dressing with like feta cheese and yogurt and build loads of like good veggies in there and a multi-grain bread base. Do all of this kind of stuff. You're enjoying your favorites, but you're making it better. And it's worked out beautifully for him. And he's really, really engaged in the process. And that's everything we would ever want to see from, from that kind of show. And the thing is, the families that we work with are people that, are, you know, they're wanting to make changes in their life, but they're coming up against the same hurdles that most people find when they're wanting to make this sort of this sort of change. Whether it's they have it, they have fussy eaters in the family, whether they're under financial pressures, whether they don't lack, whether they they lack kind of skill or confidence in the kitchen. They don't have a great deal of time. Whatever it is, we find ways to actually work around all those different hurdles with their own unique circumstances. We find solutions. And, you know, that, that just plants those little ideas for people. And we did a, a, like the book to accompany the last series. And it was just a beautiful thing to see so many people that had seen the show, that got the book, putting a lot of this information into practice and reading their own stories of transformation. It was wonderful. It really seems like from the outside, somebody who's looking in, you know, the UK, is, it feels like there's between your show, our mutual friend, Dr. Rungan Chatterjee, who has a doctor mm -hmm. in the house and, and a few other things that are happening. Uh, it really seems like there's this um, big movement and, and push right now in the UK, which I would traditionally have maybe seen as more conservative. Uh, when it came to some of these things like nutrition and diet, diet to impact mm. life and health and disease, uh, it really seems like there's a, a big shift happening there. Is that, do you think that's accurate Massive. or inaccurate? It's, yeah, 100%. It's become a huge thing. I mean, you know, there's, there's several drivers for that. The big one really is obviously here in the UK, we have the NHS, which, you know, wonderful, wonderful service, but it is buckling under the pressure the pressure that it's under from degenerative lifestyle diseases heart disease obesity type 2 diabetes these kinds of things it's really at the point where it just can't cope with it anymore and most medics are acutely aware that drugs aren't winning the war on chronic disease you know and, and i think the distinction's now been made that like you know, like me personally, if I go outside and get hit by a bus, I don't want broccoli. I want morphine. You know, with that kind of emergency medicine is miracle work. But applying that same methodology to chronic degenerative illness, it just isn't working. We're just not winning the war. And our health service is buckling under the pressure. So there's certainly a desire for lifestyle interventions to actually take some of that burden off and there's been some great campaigns around that and then we've you know we've had we've had real strong figureheads people like people like jamie oliver that have done a lot of public health campaigns um that have got people thinking differently about their food but then obviously with this increased evidence base a new research shining a spotlight on the power of nutrition the headlines have been rife with it as well it's all over our media it's all over the social media here you know, we we've got some great some great TV shows that are talking about it. I mean, I, you know, I often get chance to go on a lot of the daytime programs and cook food and talk about um, health and nutrition and stuff. And people are so receptive to it because finally it's be it's being demystified. Finally, it's not being positioned as this weird alternative endeavor. It's something that's relevant to every single one of us, and we're starting to 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 realize the hard way that we need to actually engage in our own healthcare. So there's a massive shift. I always knew the day would come. 
I really did. I just kind of felt it in my bones. I was like, yeah, this day's going to come where, where people are actually going to realize that we're not crackers for talking about this kind of stuff, that actually there's validity to it. And it's, it's a powerful thing for all of us. I think what we can learn from the NHS here in the States is that there's this big political discussion here in the States of uh, healthcare, but it's primarily who's going to pay the bill. And the one, the, the not one challenging thing, there's so many challenging things here in the US. Uh, many people do go bankrupt because they don't have health insurance. And actually the number one reason for bankruptcy in the United States is because of medical bills. And obviously you guys don't have to deal with that same thing. But the beautiful lesson mm. from the NHS is that simply getting the government to pay for healthcare is not the only answer. It's not the full story. We have to change the way that we practice healthcare. We have to address chronic lifestyle diseases with lifestyle interventions and especially food because even the NHS, as you mentioned, it's buckling. You know, I forgot what the exact stat was, but if things continue at the rate that they're at, uh, the amount of money that would be needed to be spent to take care of everybody's healthcare in England would just not be affordable by the, by the citizens anymore. And, um, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's getting, getting serious. serious and it's important conversation. And hopefully in our next, uh, we're entering into election cycle next year here in the States. I would love to see it be more a part of the conversation of how do we really get to the root cause of healthcare, not just have a conversation on who's going to pay for it. Both are important things, but how do we really get people healthy? It's an industry over here and it's very challenging. There's a lot of parts of it that are problematic, but Dale, You've shared so much wisdom with us here on the podcast. Any final words that you want to leave our listeners with when it comes to the power of of food and reclaiming their health? Wowza. It's well, you know what? It's it's something that of course is a very, very powerful intervention, but it's also something that needs to be enjoyed as well. And I, I, I see so many people that move over to a healthier diet and they're just not enjoying their food anymore. If you stop enjoying it, then you know life becomes pretty miserable so whatever you do just do something that is going to give you that pleasure that food can give you you know learn how to recreate your favorites learn how to turn healthy food into an absolute celebration of everything that food should be i love it dale you're the man i appreciate you brother uh, if you want to keep in touch with uh, you. Dale, you can find him on Instagram where he posts frequently as the medicinal chef, as well as your website. I believe it's the medicinal chef.co.uk. Uh, that's the one. Yeah. The medicinal chef.co.uk. And that's also the title of your last book. Uh, could you just give us a little pitch for that and where people can find it? Uh, okay. So the, yeah, yeah, the U S book it's called the medicinal chef it's published by sterling and you'll find it everywhere you'll find it in barnes and noble and amazon and all that kind of stuff it's uh it's out there doing the rounds amazing eat your way to better health and that's definitely what you've shown us how to do on this podcast here dale i appreciate you brother thank you for coming on the broken brain podcast thanks for having me 